Well, as our children go off to their own spiritual formation, we turn our attention now to the Word of the Lord. I have to say, uh, you know, that it says in the New Testament you don't put new wine into old wineskins. We've got a new bulletin this morning, and it's, uh, it's quite attractive and easy to read. Uh, so we've got some new things that are going on here this morning, a little unfamiliar to me. Uh, so I'm especially grateful that you're all sitting in the same seats because it <laughs> makes me feel right at home. I want to take just a moment to thank our preachers over the summer that have allowed me the time for a Sabbath break. Reverend Dr. Tom Toole and Reverend Dr. Tom Erickson, along with our summer interns and our own San Marino Community Church clergy did a wonderful job of preaching, lifting the quality of our worship here to new heights. So thanks to all of you for your, uh, your faithful witness in this course of the summer. The experience of our corporate worship here in the church each and every week brings so many blessings. It's so good to be back. Um, this morning we begin a new series a sermon series on relationships that transform our lives. We're going to look at encounters between Jesus and people like you and me in the biblical narrative that resulted in some kind of transformation in their lives. Jesus got beneath the surface, beneath the surface of their superficial self-images and self-understandings, underneath the masks they wore and the ones we wear, where we often find ourselves hiding out, self-isolating, lonely, even self-destructive. This morning, Jesus removes the mask of self-importance from his disciples and encourages them to receive a child, even to become children, if they're to enter the kingdom of heaven. So let me read now from our text of Scripture from the Gospel of Mark, excuse me, the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter, verses 46 to 50. An argument arose among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among all of you is the greatest. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we have come to hear your word. We have come to have an authentic experience of listening for you to speak. So quiet within us any voice but your own. And speak to us now as only a living God can. For we pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. 
Well, thanks to this wonderful, renewing, restorative summer sabbatical, I did a lot more flying this summer than usual. We flew on United Airlines, we flew on Delta, on Southwest, on Alaska Airlines, to the East Coast, to Colorado. I flew to San Jose to attend a concert with my daughter and son-in-law. I flew from Nashville up to New Jersey, and I flew back from New Jersey to L.A., but I'll let you in on a little secret. I actually don't like to fly. Perhaps, like me, you receive all of these invitations in the mail for credit cards, and the teaser is that you'll be able to get miles so you can go on another flight. It's the last incentive that's going to work with me. I don't want to fly. I'd be happier if I never had to climb on another plane. It feels to me a little bit like we're all being stuffed into a cattle car on a railroad or a truck. One flight that I was on this summer, I was stuffed in the middle seat in the very last row. I could see everybody getting on the plane, and I felt like I was on a carnival cruise I did not want to be on. Now, of course, one of the reasons that I don't like to fly is that the seats are not made for somebody my size. And unless I want to pay for a first-class seat, which I'm too cheap to do, I end up feeling like I'm in the nursery school at the table on one of those little chairs. I can't tell you how many times the food carts have banged into my knees because they don't fit behind the seat in front of me. So by the time I even get to the airport, I have a chip on my shoulder. This past month, I arrived at the airport for my flight. I was at the gateway, and the time came to board the plane, and that time came and went. So I approached the uh, gate agent, and I asked, when are we going to board? She told me that there were only 20 people on that flight, and they were waiting for instructions from the carrier. About five minutes later, they announced that the flight had been canceled and we'd already been booked on the next flight two hours later. I was furious. I said, I want to speak to a supervisor. Earlier that day, I had canceled another flight that I had made and they were going to charge me a $200 change fee. I wanted to know why when I change my plans, it cost me $200. They change their plans, it doesn't cost them anything. They do it with impunity. So to underscore the point with the supervisor, I heard myself saying, I get paid a lot of money for my time. Where's my compensation for the two hours I have to spend here in the airport waiting for my next flight? I have an obligation I'm trying to get to, and I want to be there on time. You know, I found it rarely really works to puff yourself up as somebody who's really important. And you guessed it, I didn't get anywhere with that supervisor. So I found myself at the next gate fuming, waiting for two hours for my flight. And in that state of mind, I looked across a couple of rows of seats at the gate, 
And there was this older African-American woman waiting for her flight at that gate. And she was wearing this T-shirt. And it simply read, A faith untested is a faith unused. Well, that little message had a way of reorienting me that day. (laughs) Put me in my place in a good way. Things didn't go my way. And since I'm the most important person in my life, my inconvenience should be everyone's concern. At least I seem to want to make it everyone's concern. Instead, I was called back to see things through a little different lens. Perhaps my faith was being tested. Perhaps I should let my faith be the seat of my behavior instead of my own delusions of my own importance and self-interest. So I said a little prayer right there. All right, Lord, I get the message. Do you really have to broadcast it like that? I felt as if she was wearing a billboard that was flashing at me. So we come to this story where there's this argument among the disciples as to who's the greatest. And they needed to be put in their place in a good way. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes the child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among you is the greatest. Jesus removes the mask of self-importance and turns their attention towards service in the kingdom of God. Jesus was aware of their inner thoughts. That concept's just a little frightening to me. (laughs) Jesus knows my inner thoughts. Some of the thoughts that pass through my mind, I'm not very proud of, especially when I'm upset, frustrated. Jesus knows those. He knows me that deeply and yet still loves me. I don't even love myself that much. It's hard for me to believe God loves me more than I can love myself. He knows me more than I know myself. So these disciples are arguing about who's the greatest among them. That is a question we're all familiar with. Our culture is absorbed with greatness and power. We endlessly pursue competition to determine who in the end is the greatest. The Dodgers are on another great run for the World Series this year. We now have two pro football teams in Los Angeles, and we're building a stadium for them. The U.S. Open's underway, but we know now that Serena Williams was denied her 24th Grand Slam championship, losing to a 19-year-old Canadian yesterday. What about Rafael Nadal today? What will happen? This year's a presidential election year. We'll determine who's going to be the front runner for the Democratic Party and whether they'll go up against the incumbent, Donald Trump. We're obsessed with winners and greatness. 
We even take delight in watching those on top fall from coveted positions of wealth and prestige and power through missteps, sexual entanglements or unfair performance enhancing drugs or insider trading, the misuse of power, on and on it goes. So the argument about who is the greatest is not a surprising or an unfamiliar argument for us. It's a question on the mind of all of those who consider themselves high achievers. How do I succeed at this? How do I get into my top choice school next year? How can I ensure an important appointment in this administration? How do I rise to the top? How do I win here? Our need to accomplish and achieve sometimes distorts our understanding of the gospel. And we think that God is instructing us to be winners in cultural terms. But Jesus knows our inner thoughts. He does nothing to support such a view. Matthew's gospel tells this story slightly differently. So Jesus calls a child and has him stand in front of the disciples and he says, I assure you that unless you change and become little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there he is, folks, right in front of the disciples and in front of you and me this morning, like that woman with that large t-shirt with a flashing billboard this kid with a mouthful of gum and a dirty face wearing mismatched clothing freshly skinned knee a scabbed over elbow a skateboard under one one arm and a gleam in his eye what are we supposed to do with this message what is a grown adult supposed to learn from a child about the power structure of the kingdom of God What has a child to teach you and me about growth in Christian faith? Well, simply put, apparently it's not the most impressive people or those with the most accomplishments, but the least likely people who are the greatest in the kingdom of God. Perhaps you're familiar with Dr. Brene Brown, who has a master's and a PhD in social work. She delivered a TED talk several years ago on vulnerability. It's had more than 11 million hits. In her book, Daring Greatly, which Greg Forgatch gave me this summer, she, she talks about scarcity. In her research, she's found that The topic of narcissism has penetrated the social consciousness that most people correctly associate narcissism with a pattern of behaviors that include grandiosity, a pervasive need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. Sounds like me at the airport. But it sounds like the disciples in this text... What almost no one understands, she writes, is how every level of severity in this diagnosis is underpinned by shame. Which means we don't fix narcissism by cutting people down to size and reminding folks of their inadequacies and smallness. Shame 
is more likely the cause of these behaviors, not the cure. So participants in her studies are asked regularly to fill in the blank. Never blank enough. How would you fill in that blank? Never blank enough. It only takes a few seconds for her research before people in the blanks put in the blanks from their own tapes. Never good enough. Never perfect enough. Never thin enough. Never powerful enough. Never successful enough. Never smart enough. Never certain enough. Never safe enough. Never extraordinary enough. And then she writes, we get scarcity because we live it. I think she's on to something here. We engage in all of this posturing about our own greatness because fundamentally, I think, we feel a sense of inadequacy and we're afraid that others will find out. We wear these masks of self-importance rather than risk actually becoming vulnerable by opening ourselves up to one another, by being more interested in others' lives than we are our own. We get scarcity in life because we live it every day. Lynn Twist, in her book, The Soul of Money, writes, For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, worrying about what we don't have enough of. And before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. With all that going on inside of us, it's no wonder that before we leave the house, we put on this mask of self-importance and we begin the competition for who's the greatest. According to Jesus, the greatest is the least among us. The disciples continue to misunderstand his point when J John, later in the passage, responds that they found someone else using Jesus' name, and they said, we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. He's not one of us. Here Jesus is holding a child before them, a living, breathing symbol that they're to welcome those who are not one of us. The kingdom includes people who are not one of us. But again, the disciples don't get it. Neither do we. We exclude those who are not one of us. Though Christ extends this radical kind of hospitality 
to the least of these. You know, children are content to play all day long and never add up the scorecard at the end of the day. Their worth is not dependent upon what they can manage to get done or what they can check off their to-do list. They approach life with a sense of wonder and awe that allows them to both believe and to make believe. Remember that great equalizer when we were kids? Ollie, ollie, income, freedom. Game's over, let's start another one. Children laugh at life's incongruities. They also laugh at themselves. Now, I know children are not to be idealized here, and not all laughter among children is kind. But at its best, the ability to laugh at ourselves keeps a a perspective that's so critical. And in a sense, it's a willingness to be cut down to size and emerge from that experience liberated rather than devastated. We get to stand outside of ourselves and see how truly comical our pretensions to greatness really are. So here's the thing. Here's the real irony for the disciples and for you and me. We're much less than we pretend to be. But so too are we much more than we think we are. Because we're loved by a God who is much greater than we know and can even imagine. Children, when they play, take for granted that the rules of the game can change, that life is full of change, and every day is stocked with possibilities and opportunities. The world is fluid, dynamic. It's not static. It's not all predetermined. Jesus places a child before them. I mean, who would have thought, really, that when the Almighty God chooses to visit the creation, the world that God has made, he would come as a helpless, defenseless child, one of the least of these, born that first Christmas day. Our great and gracious God intervenes in human history and in your history and in mine and places this child before us. And so doing, the Lord disarms us, invites us to take off our masks of self-importance and to become authentic human beings as we were created to be, who learn to truly love in real relationships with others instead of hiding behind the masks we wear. Unless you become like one of these, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. And so, gracious God, we come. We grow up, and we take on the responsibilities, the duties of adult lives, and that is as it should be. But, O oh Lord, as we give up our, child, our childishness, help us to retain our childlikeness, 
Remove our masks of self-centered importance so that we may not only worship you, but we might enjoy you forever as well. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.